I have a confession to make. I have a brand new, shiny, never been used Instant Pot. Only the thing is that it's not actually that new. I bought it almost four years ago. In an effort to get myself to actually use it, last year I moved it from my storage closet to my kitchen cabinets. Didn't do anything. At one point, I actually took it out of all of the packaging, but all the pieces basically just sat on my counter for a few days until I packaged it back up and tucked it back away. From what I can tell, there are a couple of things that keep me from using my now old, brand new shiny Instant Pot. First, I've heard the thing is actually dangerous. Can't it like explode and burn you? Also, I don't have that easy go-to recipe. So even if I did get up the nerve to actually use the thing, I don't know what to make in it. Companies know that for many of these wonderful products, people will not actually buy or use them if they can't get by hurdles like these. Which is why often at retailers, you will see someone standing there to demonstrate the product for you, to show you how easy it is, to give you everything you need so that you can use it right away. And that's because they know something. They know that practically speaking, demonstrations are powerful you get much more from a demonstration than you get from reading a manual. In this week's text, we received several demonstrations, some of which were good, some of which were not so good. And just like any good demonstration, the events in this week's text have the potential to practically impact our faith. So as we work our way through the text, we're going to be intentional at looking at the various demonstrations that we see, and we're going to allow them to challenge us in the demonstrations that we make on a daily basis. Let's start reading in Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. The entire Israelite community entered the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and they settled in Kadesh. Miriam died and was buried there. This first verse gives us important contextual information. The, the Israelites have been wandering around the wilderness for decades now, and we're told that they entered the wilderness of Zin in the first month. Now, we're not given the year, but from some clues in Scripture and other places in Scripture, most commentators agree that this was likely the first month of the 40th year. So coming to the end of the, elder, of the Israelites' time roaming around the wilderness. In addition to giving us a time marker, the text tells us a location, Kadesh. This was a familiar place. Kadesh is the place back in Numbers 13 and 14 where the previous generation of Israelites refused to enter the Promised Land. So after all their wilderness wanderings, they come back to this place. Places have a way of calling to mind events, feelings, memories long forgotten, 
Many of the people, this next generation, would have been children when their parents refused to enter the promised land. Maybe they all of a sudden remembered Caleb and Joshua pleading with their parents, don't rebel against the Lord. Go in, take the good land. Or maybe they remembered God's judgment and everybody devastated by it. Or maybe they just thought about the fact that that one day would cost them all 40 years. The fact that Miriam died here accentuates this point. Miriam was a prominent figure. She was Moses and Aaron's older sister. She was a prophetess. Even Miriam did not escape the consequences of the group's actions. Returning to Kadesh at the beginning of the second approach to the promised land stood as a strong reminder and a warning for this generation to not do what their parents did. With that contextual information, let's take a look at our first demonstration, picking up in verse 2. There was no water for the community, so they assembled against Moses and Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses. If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? Why have you led us up from Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's not a place of grain, figs, vines, and pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. What we have right here is a clear demonstration of human nature. And we see that even God's people are not immune to human nature. So what can we learn from this demonstration? First, let's look at what caused the demonstration. Hardship. It is not hard to trust God when everything's going well. The true test comes when we encounter hardship of any kind. What will we do with that? What did the Israelites do? They grumbled and they complained. But it wasn't some vague complaint. They didn't say, we're going to die, or we wish we would die. They actually took it a step further. They said, if only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. That is referring to something specific. Now, we can't be sure exactly what they're referring to, but we can know that whatever it is they're referring to is not good. Maybe they're referring to Korah's rebellion back in number 16, you know, where they tried to overthrow Moses and Aaron. Are they saying they wish they had done that? Or perhaps they're just referring to all their parents all dying before the Lord in the wilderness. Are they saying that they wish that they had done the same thing their parents and refused to enter the promised land? What are they saying here? And imagine how that would come across to Moses, who has just been made to wander around the wilderness for 40 years because the previous generation would not trust God, and now this same generation is basically saying the same thing. How easy it is for us to forget 
the very strong reminders and warnings that we receive when we encounter hardship. Finally, let's consider their accusation. Why have you led us up from Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's not a place of grain, figs, vines, and pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. It is human nature for us to focus on our current circumstances and to think that God has let us down. The truth of the matter is that they had not yet came to the place of vines, grains, figs, and pomegranates. They were still on the journey. So God was going to fulfill this promise, but they weren't there yet. These details are not here for us to shake our heads at the Israelites. In fact, I would strongly caution us against doing that. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Instead of shaking our heads at the Israelites, what we really should do is take to heart that we are all prone to act similarly when we face trials. If I'm honest, I have acted in similar ways during difficult trials. I have acted in similar ways during not so difficult trials. It is in our human nature to demonstrate these sorts of actions. But what God wants from us is a different kind of demonstration. What he wants us to demonstrate is trust. But if we are going to trust God, if we are to demonstrate trust, we are going to have to actually fight our natural inclination. How can we do that? We can do that by keeping in mind the perspective. We need to keep in mind what it is that trials produce. Trials in the life of a believer produce endurance, the ability to keep on keeping on. They also produce maturity. Trials are where we actually see the merit of our faith. We see the quality of it. And every subsequent trial is an opportunity for us to do better than the last time. So when we see trials, we can actually see our spiritual growth. And we can always take comfort in the fact that God uses everything in the life of a believer, including trials, for our good. We need to remember that these things that happened to the Israelites... They're recorded for us to instruct us so that when we think we're standing firm, we're careful that we don't fall. When we face trials, we have a choice. We can choose to doubt and defy God, or we can choose to trust and obey him. Either way, we are making a demonstration to everyone that's watching. As we continue on, we are going to see another demonstration, this time from Israel's leaders, from Moses and Aaron. Let's pick up reading in verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting. 
they fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord spoke to Moses, take the staff and assemble the community. You and your brother Aaron are to speak to the rock while they watch and it will yield its water. You will bring out water for them from the rock and provide drink for the community and their livestock. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he had commanded them. Moses and Aaron summoned the assembly in front of the rock and Moses said to them, listen you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff so that abundant water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me to demonstrate my holiness in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. This section of scripture merits a very close look. This right here is what kept Moses and Aaron out of the promised land. The last generation couldn't go in because they didn't trust God and they refused to enter. This is what kept Moses and Aaron out. And we see from that just how important this event was. Now, before we get into the event itself, I want to point something out. The book of Hebrews refers to Moses as a faithful servant in God's household. And we get clues throughout scripture that both Moses and Aaron ended their life in right standing with God. In fact, in the New Testament, at, Jesus, at the transfiguration, Moses was there. So we're not really talking about a salvation issue, but still, their actions had earthly consequences. And that should stand as a warning to us. Even two of the most important people in the entire Bible could not escape consequences when their actions were wrong. No matter all of their pleading with God, and they still he would not relent. So in order to glean what we should from this very important demonstration, we need to look closely at what God says about it. In Numbers 20, 24, and 27, 14, God said that the reason Moses and Aaron could not enter the promised land was because they rebelled against his command. And in Numbers 20:12, God even tells us what caused them to rebel. They did not trust God. Trust means a firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, strength of someone or something. So Moses and Aaron didn't believe that God's way of dealing with the Israelites was going to produce in them what it should. So instead, they did whatever they thought was best. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 32:51 gives us more insight. God says they broke faith, were disloyal by failing to treat God as holy in the Israelites' presence. Holiness is one of the harder attributes of God to understand. At its most basic level, Holy means set apart, different from. God is altogether different from, higher than, 
anyone and everyone. God is perfect. So how did Moses and Aaron fail to treat God as holy? Well, it could certainly be when they did not carefully obey his command. Our disobedience, our rebellion against what God says, is us failing to treat God as holy, not acknowledging that he is perfect, his way is perfect, he knows everything. I read someone say something like this, when God has something to say on a matter, we should not do it our way. We should do it his way. If we don't care what God thinks, if we don't ask him what he thinks, if when we know what he thinks, we don't do it, we are failing to treat God as holy. I've also often wondered if it didn't have something to do with the fact that they sort of take credit for what God did. Must we bring water from the rock? They weren't really the ones bringing water from the rock. God was bringing water from the rock through them. And this stands as a warning to leaders or mature believers to not become so accustomed to God working through you that you start to take a little bit of credit for what it is that God did. God should receive all of the glory for what God does. That is treating God as holy. Another thing that we see multiple times in God's explanation of what happened is that Moses and Aaron did not demonstrate God's holiness. So God wanted them to treat him as holy, but he wanted them to take it a step further and demonstrate his holiness. To demonstrate means to give a practical exhibition of, to prove by showing an example. Demonstrating God's holiness is acting the way that God would act. Only God, God is the only one that sees every situation perfectly. So if God is angry, the situation merits anger. If God is patient, that's what the situation merits. So look at God. Look at God's reaction to what the Israelites did, to their complaints and their accusations. Does he look frustrated or angry? I mean, I don't think so. He looks pretty matter-of-fact. So if Moses and Aaron were angry when God was not, then they were failing to demonstrate God's holiness. They were giving the Israelites a different impression of God than was true. Look, it is not that Moses was angry. Moses was furious when they made the golden calf. And God was too. So it actually makes me wonder that if he hadn't been angry about the golden calf, if he would have been failing to demonstrate God's holiness. Listen, we should be angry about what angers God. And we should not be angry about what doesn't anger God. 
The problem is that in our day-to-day -day lives, it's not always that easy to discern. We cannot always trust our reaction to be aligned with God's. Look at what God says about himself in Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. As heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, the longer that we walk with God, the more we are conformed to his image, the more we're going to automatically react to situations the way that he would. But we still cannot trust every knee-jerk reaction that we have. Moses and Aaron walked with the Lord for a very long time, and their reaction was not aligned with God's. We have to ask God what he thinks, and then we need to give him some time to reveal it to us. I'm going to give you a practical illustration. I'm sure you have witnessed a toddler who falls, and before they do anything, they look to see what everyone's reaction is. If everyone looks on in horror, they start sobbing. But if everyone looks unfazed, they just shake it off and walk away. That's how we should be. We should be looking to God for his reaction in any given situation and mirroring it. Why is this so important? Because God is holy. Because his ways are not our ways. God is very hard for people to understand. So those of us that know God, it becomes very important how we demonstrate him to others. Like it or not, right or wrong, people judge God and they judge Christianity based on the actions of Christians. Consider the words of Gandhi. I would be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. Consider the damage that is done to the name of God when pastors are caught in affairs or abuse, or when prominent book authors or worship leaders denounce the faith or um, depart from the major tenets of the faith. The more prominence someone has, the more damage they can do to the name of God. Moses and Aaron had the most prominence of anyone in all of the nation of Israel by far. And the standard for them was higher, not lower. But even for those of us that don't have much authority or prominence, we should still be very concerned with demonstrating God well to those around us. We have one more demonstration from this section of scripture. Verse 13, these are the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and he demonstrated his holiness to them. How did God demonstrate his holiness? Was it just in how he reacted to the Israelites 
and to Moses and Aaron? Or was there something more? In our homework, we looked at 1 Corinthians 10, and we saw that the rock that yielded its water so that the Israelites could drink was likened to Christ. We also looked at John 7. Jesus said, the one who believes in me, as the scripture said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And we're told that he said this about the spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit. For the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So the rock points to Jesus Christ. And the water points to living water, eternal life through the Holy Spirit. This event in Numbers 20, when the Israelites are about to enter the promised land, bears striking resemblance to another event back in Exodus 19. In both, the Israelites are without water. They grumble and they complain. Moses goes to the Lord. In Exodus 17, God tells Moses to strike the rock, and he does, and it yields its water. But here in Numbers 20, God's instructions to Moses were different. Instead, God said to speak to the rock. But Moses did what he did back in Exodus 17, and he struck the rock. And although the rock still yielded its water, the consequence to Moses was that he could not enter the promised land. In order for the rock to first yield its water, it had to be struck. After that, it only needed to be spoken to. Isn't this a picture of how salvation would be obtained? Hebrews 9 tells us that Christ's one-time sacrifice was sufficient. Christ was struck one time, providing us access to God. After that, from that point on, each of us need only speak to the rock. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I believe Moses and Aaron's actions here in Numbers 20 provided an opportunity for God to make a very important demonstration for us. Not just in the fact that God expects his people to trust him, to carefully obey him, to demonstrate him well to others, all of which are absolutely true. But I believe this also provided an opportunity for God to give us a demonstration about salvation. When Moses and Aaron treated the rock differently, from how God said, they were denied access to the promised land. When anyone treats Jesus Christ differently from how God says, if they do not trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, if they do not call on his name for salvation, likewise, they will not inherit eternal life. So after this incident at the rock, the Israelites prepared to start their journey toward the promised land. They were still in Kadesh, and they were on the border of the land of Edom. 
In this section of scripture, the Israelites refer to the Edomites as their brothers. This was not just something nice that they were saying. They actually were related. Abraham's son Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. The Israelites are the descendants of Jacob, and the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. So Moses sends messengers to the king of Edom requesting permission to travel through his land on their way to the promised land, which the king of Edom flat out denies. And despite all of Moses' assurances, the king of Edom would not budge. So the Israelites turn away and they go a different way. The words of God in Deuteronomy 2 provide us a little more insight into this account. God said, command the people, you are about to travel through the territory of your brothers, the descendants of Esau who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Don't provoke them, for I will not give you any of their land, not even a foot of it, because I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his possession. So we see here that the Israelites had received specific direction from God regarding how they interact with the Edomites, and they obeyed. Good job. As we move through the second half of Numbers, we're going to see that God does not tell the Israelites to deal with each and every people group exactly the same. God had a will for each of these groups that he was going to encounter, and it was the Israelites' job to know what that will was and to obey God. This reminds me of Deuteronomy 29, 29. I love this verse. The Lord our God has secrets known to no one. We are not accountable for them. But we and our children are accountable forever for all he has revealed to us so that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. You see, the Old Testament focuses in on the story of God's people, the Israelites. But we get clues throughout Scripture of God interacting with different people groups. For instance, in the book of Jonah, God actually sent an Israelite prophet to an entirely different people group, the Ninevites, telling them to repent, and they did. When we look at numbers, we're going to come across God interacting with a non-Israelite. Obedience to God is doing what God says when he says it. You see, God was eventually going to judge the Edomites, but not now. And if the Israelites would have moved ahead of God's timing, they would have been in rebellion and they would have experienced defeat. And this truth is shown throughout Scripture. When God promised that he would give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan, back in Genesis 15, he said, after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. God was patient with the Amorites, the people living in the promised land. But after 400 years, as the just judge of the entire world, God decided that enough was enough and that he was going to give that land to the Israelites. God's timing matters. Picking back up in verse 22. After they set out from Kadesh, the entire Israelite community came to Mount Hor. 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor on the border of the land of Edom, Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will not enter the land I have given the Israelites, because you both rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and his son Eleazar and bring them up Mount Hor. Remove Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eleazar. Aaron will be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did as the Lord commanded, and they climbed Mount Hor in the sight of the whole community. After Moses removed Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eleazar, Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. When the whole community saw that Aaron had passed away, the entire house of Israel mourned for him 30 days. This section of scripture shows us a lot about God. First, we see the faithfulness of God. Now, we often like to think of faithfulness as God doing the good things he promises to do. But technically, faithfulness is God doing whatever he said he would do, whether we perceive that to be good or not so good. So when God exacts punishment like he says he will, he is proving himself faithful. And here, when Aaron dies and is not allowed to go into the promised land, God proved himself faithful to that word that he gave. But we also see God being merciful. It is merciful to be prepared for what lies ahead. Moses and Aaron received instructions from God, revelation that Aaron was going to die, and then instructions for what to do. He provided for the Israelites an orderly transition of power. So God told Moses to take Aaron's garments and place them on Eleazar. This is referring to Aaron's priestly garments, which we studied back in Exodus 28. The ephod, the robe, the tunic, the turban, the sash, all of those things. And they represent the authority and the responsibility of the high priest. So we see that Eleazar, Aaron's son, was going to become the next high priest of Israel. And in Numbers chapter 33 we are told that Aaron died on the first day of the fifth month of the 40th year. So after 30 days of, war of mourning, chapter 20 wraps up on the first day of the sixth month of the 40th year with the Israelites at Mount Hor on the edge of the promised land. We're all familiar with the old adage, actions speak louder than words. And we have seen that proven to be true in the many demonstrations that we saw in this week's text. In their complaints and through their frustrations at the rock, the Israelites and Moses and Aaron showed us the strong inclinations of our human nature. However, in their obedience to the Lord regarding the Edomites and Aaron's death, we saw these very same people demonstrate a humble submission to the will of God. And through it all, no matter what the people were doing, God consistently demonstrated the excellency of his holy nature. Each of these demonstrations speak a powerful word over us today. In our daily life, as we look to live out our calling to be God's holy people, what will we demonstrate to the watching world? 